Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. I've been doing this podcast since September of 2012, and boy, are my lips tired. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. It helps if I actually put this on the screen. Let's go with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, welcome to another episode of LOA Today, and uh, we are going to be exploring a, a, a pair of topics that we don't normally associate with each other, but we're going to learn that they're actually fairly more closely connected than we had originally thought. And and they're not topics we've talked about a lot here. We've talked about one of them to some degree. The other one has gotten almost no attention. Um, So it's going to start getting some attention and it'll probably get some emails as a result too. But we're going to be talking about sex and death. Now, I have to admit, I don't really normally associate them, but I have been doing a little research leading up to doing this episode with my guest today, Elizabeth Wood, who is an expert on these topics. And uh, yeah, there apparently are quite a few connections dating back to that most famous psychoanalyst of all, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> and so she's going to give us some of the uh, the background on that and how it ties into her current work. But uh, Elizabeth Wood, thank you for joining me on the program today. I really appreciate you taking the time and you know, welcome. You're welcome. It's really, it's a, a happy thing to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, a, this is the happy place. That's a good thing. That's what I so, so this is a really easy first question and you knew it was the softball question that was coming. What is the connection between sex and death of all things? So there are all kinds of connections, as you mentioned, but um, one of the most immediate things that comes to my mind when I think about how they're connected is that they're both things we don't talk very much about in the United States. Mm. So they're similarly taboo, and yet they're similarly ever-present in our society, right? So in our mass media, for instance, sex is everywhere. Oh, and, yes. you know, sex in movies, sex in music, sex on television, and that's not even talking about pornography. That's just the main... Oh, no, that's just conversational yeah exactly but Mm -hmm. it's not you know it's not represented in a way that represents the kind of sex most of us actually have it's Mm -hmm. it's very airbrushed and and very smooth and and not problematic and it doesn't require conversation it just happens (laughs) and then we see with nice background music but yeah yeah great background music (laughs) lovely lighting nothing ever goes wrong no oops moments no no they don't exist (laughs) right and um and and on the other hand with death we see death in all our media too you know mm-hmm. there's tons of of crime shows with murder victims and oh yeah you know there's the the nightly news uh, but those aren't generally oh and then the hospital shows too those aren't generally the deaths most of us are going to have either mm. and just like with sex we're not very practiced at talking about them so i think they they share that in common they're kind of ever present and then still very taboo for ordinary people to talk about and then the other thing of course that I think unites them is that they are both intrinsically part of life, right? So sex is a big part of what begets life and every life is going to end at some point. And so the fact that these two really fundamental parts of our lives are so taboo is fascinating to me. And so that's why I like to talk about them together. And and plus you've made a study of it. I mean, you, your career is a soci- you're a sociologist, you're a professor. I mean, you, you, these have been part of your curricula that you've been teaching to your students, isn't it? Yeah, they have. So I'm I'm a sociologist who got my training in studying sexuality and deviant behavior and mm-hmm. um, social structure and things like that. I've only recently started becoming interested in the subject of dying. So that mm-hmm. for me is really in the last like ten years. Okay, and so that's fascinating, also. And one of the things that um, prompted that in my life was my mother's death. Uh-huh. So I was her primary caregiver for the last eight months of her life while she was dying. Mm-hmm. And she discovered her sexuality very late in her life. So in her living out the end of her life, sexuality was a big component of wow talked about. Yeah. Okay. So that's another reason why to me the, the two subjects are kind of intrinsically linked in a really cool way. Yeah, I can see that. Sure. Especially if you have an experience like that, it would be a very obvious connection, even if it's not obvious for the rest of us. It would certainly. It becomes very obvious. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty quickly, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And And plus also, like, like, like you mentioned, they're both, uh, taboo subjects in a sense. Um, we've actually spent some time talking about death in various contexts here. Not so much about sex. I don't know why it hasn't really ever come up. 
But you're right. There, there are topics that we kind of walk on pins and needles as we're talking about them. We want, we want to make sure we're not offending anybody and we want to make sure that we're not going too far over the line because that's not socially acceptable and so forth. And some of us aren't even sure where the line is. Right. And, you know, so it, it, it's confusing. Right. But the one thing that I think they, the two have in common, and this is going to sound strange to some people, but I, I suspect it's not going to be strange to you. Both of them have fear about them. Oh, sure. Big, big fears. Big yeah. fears. I mean, certainly around death, I think a lot of people can pretty much associate on that. But sex? Sex? Fear? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, think about the way we teach sex ed in the in this country, right? Mm. The way that most kids get sex ed in high school or middle school is, here's how it happens. Don't do it or you'll die. <laughs> so it hasn't changed in 40 years. Okay. Right. That's interesting. <laughs> you know, there's, there are great models for sex ed out there. And, you know, if you're lucky, then you go to a school that uses one of those models, but that's mm. a small fraction of the students in our country. Mm -hmm. So it yeah. starts there, you know? Yeah. And it, and it just keeps building after that because then we have all the sexually transmitted diseases and you're supposed to be yeah. afraid of all of those. And uh, of course, yeah. there, there was a really interesting piece that I saw as I was doing the research here. Apparently for some people, maybe even many people, the sexual experience is enhanced if there's a fear of death associated with it. I, I thought, whoa, that's really interesting. Well, people have all kinds of things that turn them on. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised on a show like this where your focus is happiness that you don't talk about sex more often. I don't know why it is. It just doesn't, it hasn't come up. I, I, I don't know. I can't That's tell so you. Interesting. <laughs> and I mean, I think we, we, we make references to it at times, but it's never been a topic. Yeah. You know, it's I would been think, something to look at in depth. I would think that what a lot of people are trying to attract into their lives in terms of creating their happiness is relationships and intimacy and that that would come relationships for sure relationships we've talked yeah. about a lot but not so much from the sexual side more about the actual relationship itself person right. to person and, and all the different right. problems that pop up in that area but we should be at some point exploring the, the sexual yeah. side too, because that's part of especially for an intimate a, a primary relationship that's, yeah. a, that's a key piece of it you know without yeah. that most people consider it to be not a prime relationship right and and a, a disconnect between two partners around sex is often connected to why a relationship ends Yep. Yep. That, that often plays a huge role. So mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. So, okay. What, mental note, note to self, talk, <laughs> talk about sex more. Talk about sex more. <laughs> That's right. That's but, you know, I wonder if one reason that, that it doesn't come up often is like you were alluding to earlier, people do think of it as, as more private than other aspects of relationships. Mm. Yeah. And so like, for instance, when I was taking care of my mother, we had a very open relationship talking about sex, which is unusual lots of adult children taking care of their parents would not think to talk about sex with their parents and nor would the parent think to bring it up. Like oh yeah. Child. So, you know, it gets back to that issue of sex being taboo to discuss in general, but in certain settings and perhaps, you know, on a podcast that's not dedicated specifically to sex, then it starts to seem even more taboo. Yeah, you know, perhaps in certain kinds of relationships and certain kinds of settings. Now I'm psychoanalyzing myself. Why haven't we put sex on here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you need a list of people to talk to. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, hey, I'm always looking for guests. So that's a yeah. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. Because like, it is interesting. I mean, I've spent a lot of time writing and thinking about sex and sex on the internet. Like people say, well, the internet was practically invented for sex, right? But sex is segregated into specific portions of the internet. So there oh, are, yeah. you know, there were sex blogs and there are sex podcasts, but if something isn't dedicated specifically to sex, then it's like sex shouldn't come up there. I think that's true. Uh, I, I think it's even more true for death. I think yeah. there's actually probably more taboo, if you will, around that topic mm -hmm. than anything else. I, Cause I, there are fears certainly associated with sex. I think the fears mm -hmm. associated with death are more prevalent and, and yeah. stronger. I think because so. there's a finality that, that, that people associate with death. And, they, and, and there's a lot of question about it because, you know, we, many people have belief systems about what happens. Is, is there anything after death? And if right. there is, what's it like and so forth. Um, but in another sense, you could argue none of us really know because we haven't gotten right. there yet. Um, right. And we can talk to people who have had sex, but we can't talk to people who have died. Unless you well, well, we can. We can, claim, we can talk to people who claim that they've died. I, yes. I've had people like that on the show. You know, but do you it's really know for certain? Well, perhaps not. I mean, it comes down to belief, really. It's faith, right? Yeah. So what right. do you believe in? 
And, right. and literally that's true for all topics, but it's going to be especially true for both of these topics. What do you believe in? Do you believe, for instance, in, a, in an afterlife? Do you believe that sex is good for you? Do you believe that, I mean, the belief plays a major role in yeah. both of these topics. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And often what we believe is what we end up living, right? There's this, there's this core sociology idea that um, we construct reality through our interactions with people. And if we believe something is real, then it's real in its consequences. Mm -hmm. I think that actually gets to a lot of the idea of the law of attraction too. And the idea of attracting things into your life, like the way you define a situation determines how you act toward it. And then that determines the outcome. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, we talk about belief. bubbles of reality, people living in their own bubbles of reality that they created. They right. created them in their own minds and then they lived them and then they actually turn out to be true for them. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly. So interesting that I'm glad to hear sociology is also exploring it in a slightly different angle, but the same basic idea. Yeah. There's a classic text in sociology called the social construction of reality. Mm -hmm. And it, it addresses exactly that idea that you know, we don't, it's not just that we make it up in our own heads, but we, we have ideas that we form through interaction with other people. And then those ideas become reinforced. And then if there's a belief system that's part of our, well, there's always a belief system that's part of our, our lives, then that belief system also shapes what we understand to be real. And if we think something is real, then we act toward it as if it is real. And then for us and for the people who believe the same way, it is real. So I imagine the same thing happens specifically with topics of death and sex, because yeah. they're going to be part of the realities that, we're, are, that we are creating for ourselves. So yeah. why don't you address that for a few moments? Talk about the various ways we create our realities on those topics. Well, there's so many things to talk about. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about death, particularly. And one of the big questions that I think about a lot about death is how do we achieve the kind of death that we want? And that's a hard question for people to answer in the first place, because the idea of wanting any kind of death is not something that most people in the U.S. anyway identify with. Death is something to be avoided, not something to be wanted. And in our medical system, death is treated like a failure, right? Like you're treating an illness or you're treating a condition and you're fighting whatever the disease is, and then it gets you in the end and the the medical system has failed you. And I think if we think about death that way, if that's the reality of death for us, then death is something that we want to avoid at all costs, which is a shame because it's inevitable. We have to die. So I prefer to encourage people to think of it as something that we will achieve. We will all achieve death at some point. Is there a way to think about the kind of death you want to achieve and then create the conditions that are going to make that more likely than others? So, you know, for instance, there was an article in the New York Times just the other day about lots of people say they want to die at home. And that is comforting because they don't want to die attached to a lot of machines with a lot of um, dramatic intervention in a hospital. Mm -hmm. But what does dying at home really look like? You know, and ha have people thought that out and figured out, well, who will take care of them? What kind of care will that involve? Um, there are alternatives that are not the hospital. There are like acute care hospice mm -hmm. arrangements, for instance. Right. But unless we start defining death as something that we want to achieve, we're not likely to explore the roots to the kind of death we might prefer. So I was thinking about this when I was thinking about your podcast, because I was thinking about how happiness and death are connected. Mm. And again, I think our, our default in this culture is to think death can't be about happiness. You know, and thinking about death certainly doesn't make us happy. But I think if we have that chronic fear of death in the back of our heads, then that contributes to anxiety and unhappiness. Oh, yes. And think ahead, define death as something we're going to achieve and then plan, essentially. You know, it, it, obviously anybody could be hit by a bus or an accident can happen and, you know, all the planning goes out the window. But if we can approach it as something like that, define it as an achievement, that we are striving for, then the reality of death changes. Yeah. And so that's yeah, what I, I in answer to your question, you know, talk for a little bit about the beliefs associated. Yeah. yeah. I, reality. That's, that's the way I've been thinking a lot about it lately. Specifically well, what, what you're talking about reminds me of a conversation I had with another guest. Uh, she was on the end of December, um, 2021. 
Uh, she's a registered nurse named Suzanne O'Brien, and she's a death doula. And mm-hmm. she was talking about uh, she's actually an advocate of death doulas and training yeah. more people and so forth in, in that uh, that uh, discipline, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And one of the things that she was talking about, she told a story about how she's well, she told a number of stories about how she's been present at people's deaths and how they've been actually very enriching experiences for her. Mm-hmm. One of the ones that she told was about a, uh, a woman who was in her late 40s, I think, dying from cancer. And she was in the last day or two of her life. And at one point, when the doctor was visiting her, she kind of sat up and said, go get my sister. I'm transitioning. Yeah. <laughs> like, whoa. What an interesting yeah. comment. And she she didn't say it with fear. She said it with excitement. Yeah. Right. And she wanted her sister there. Yeah. And she had the presence of mind and the ability to ask for that. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, in, a, in a whole different direction, thinking about it in terms of sex and how we create reality. Mm-hmm. Um, in the story I tell about my mother, the, the um, kind of sexual reawakening she had in her later years, so in her late 50s and early 60s, which for her, unfortunately, was her later years, was that she discovered she enjoyed sexual dominance with men. Oh. And she had previously for, you know, decades been celibate, not in any relationships, not particularly fond of men. She had had some very unhappy relationships. But two things happened that were really interesting. And one was that she found this kind of sexual dominance that allowed her to to create a reality with men that was really fulfilling for her because she suddenly mm-hmm. had power and control that she didn't used to think of as being part of a sexual relationship with a man. Uh-huh. So the redefinition of sexual intimacy to include this kind of power exchange absolutely changed her reality of sex. And it turns out there are lots of men who were looking for sexually dominant women. And so she had no trouble finding partners. Wow. And she had a really vibrant, um, exciting and, and pleasure filled sex life then for, for quite a while. And the second thing that happened that was fascinating to me is that she got kidney cancer, had to have a kidney removed. And then her other kidney failed. So she ended up on mm. dialysis. Wow. Dialysis is usually understood to be this really draining process that mm-hmm. is just really hard on people. But there is a kind of dialysis that you can do at home, which is gentler. Um, it's called peritoneal dialysis. And I don't think we necessarily need to get into the, the mechanics of it. But the thing that was so surprising was that in part because of her experience with sexual dominance, which involved a lot of um, rethinking about the body and rethinking about objects and sensations, suddenly she was able to think about this medical treatment she had to go through without as much fear. Wow. Because she really redefined a lot of, a lot of her body. She had really redefined. And then the illness, I mean, it became this kind of interesting cycle. The illness then changed her body in ways that ended up being beneficial to her in the long run. And allowed her to have uh, more activity in her life. She felt better once the dialysis was going on. Um, it, but it was fascinating because the kinky part of her sex life involved a lot of inflicting of pain or um, use of objects and devices we don't normally think of as connected to sex. Oh, okay. These medical procedures were not as scary. In other words, sex uh, people are kind of resilience and a kind of... Um, a whole new language or vocabulary really to draw from, to think about what else was going on. So that was fascinating too, in terms of redefinition and creating reality as we go. Well, yeah. I mean, I personally, I've never had any interest in, in any of the, uh, uh, the pain related uh, forms of, of sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I never really understood why people would want to, I, I kind mm-hmm. of sort of did, but not really, but you just gave a, a really, really good explanation about why somebody might want it. Now that actually makes a lot of sense to me. And interestingly, in the terms of the men that she saw anyway, and I'm not about to generalize about people who are interested in kink because they are as varied as the rest of people. Um, but interestingly, the men that she saw were often men who did have fairly powerful positions and they were interested in surrendering some of that power and having somebody else really be in control. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And, um, and it really did give her a new way to think about what she was going through so that when she did have to face some of these really difficult medical procedures, they weren't quite as scary as they might've been for me, you know? Well, it's a, it's a, a prevalent theme here is the changing of perspective in in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different topics, but that change of perspective in every case, in every situation after situation after situation always results in an entirely different way of understanding something and thinking about something and feeling about something. So to hear you talk about how she felt differently about it, that resonates with me. That's like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, if, if she changes the way that she is experiencing a physical activity and it's, and it's similar to in some way what she's going through medically. Of course, of course she's going to think about it differently. How could she not? How could she not? Right. Right. It's almost an inevitability. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, well, we've got two different paths here. I'm not sure which way to go. Maybe, maybe, maybe they kind of meet at some point. They, they yeah, meet a number of times. You know, but but they're like, well, do we go this way? Do we go that way? I don't know. They look pretty good. Uh, let, 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 let's go more down the sex line because, like I said, that's the one we haven't really explored as much as the death line. Um, what are some of the other things that, that you could tell us about that might make us think about sex a little bit differently? Make us perhaps for some people who are who still have their own little things about the taboos of sex. And they're trying to find ways to let go of them. Give us some stories to help us to to accomplish just that. Well, um, one thing we could talk about is the the need to talk about sex more often. And who do you need to talk about it with, right? So if you are not enjoying sex and you have a partner, is part of the issue that you're not talking to your partner about what you like and what you don't like and what Mm -hmm. feels good or what used to work and be part of your sexual routines, but now it's, a, it's difficult or it's a problem. This is something that a lot of people experience through the aging process as our bodies change. Mm-hmm. Things we used to be able to do easily are harder to do. Positions we used to enjoy don't feel good anymore. Um, we need more assistance in the form of lube or pillows or something to, you know, make sex mm-hmm. more comfortable. But if we're too, afraid to talk about it or to mention it to a partner, then that certainly gets in the way. So, so helping people talk about those things, I think is really important. Yeah. And fear certainly is one, maybe it's the sort of generic way of describing why people feel blocked to talk, talk about it. But I suspect it's probably not the only one. No, I I think, I think embarrassment is a big part of it. And maybe embarrassment Mm -hmm. is connected to fear a little bit. If I tell somebody this, will they think differently about me? If I tell my partner this, will they think I'm not turned on by them mm-hmm. anymore? Or, mm-hmm. um, or will they not be turned on mm-hmm. if I reveal this to them? Mm-hmm. Right? The yeah. other thing, like the other piece of that, and this is not true only for people who are aging, but um, it can be connected to all different kinds of health experiences, is that we are not very willing always to talk to our doctors about sex. And doctors yeah. get like zero training in talking to us about it. So, so, so probably our determination not to is a good idea because they don't have the training to actually help us. Well, but they may, if we, t- if we ask them very specific questions, um, they may be able to either answer our questions or refer us to somebody who can. Ah, okay. But what I mean is they're not trained to think about even asking the questions that we might need to be asked. Mm. Uh, and, and many of them are not trained with the answers either, but, they might help us find the people who can. A, a dear friend and a person I admire a lot named Joan Price, who writes a lot about aging and sex. Uh, I sat in on a workshop of hers once and she talked about the need to develop what she called a medical mantra. And I won't get the words exactly the way she had them, but the spirit of it is basically, you know, in a conversation with your doctor, you might say something like, doctor, my sexuality is really important to me. And this is the thing that I'm having trouble with, you know, whatever it is. And I need your help to figure out what's going wrong and what I can do about it. And if you are not the person to help me with that, can you recommend a person who is? And the reason it needs to be a mantra is that we're so unpracticed at it that we really need to like repeat it over and over until it becomes easy to say. Mm. So basically trying to provide a a method for us to get the conversation started that we really are reluctant to start. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
and you know, to, to keep crossing the paths over and over, I think the same things are true about talking about death, that we have to be able to start those conversations with our partners and our families, but also with our doctors. Um, and it's a similar kind of opening, you know, this thing is really important to me. This is what my concern is. Can you help me? And if you can't help me, can you connect me with somebody who can? So it comes down in many ways, whether it's sex or death, to being clear in our own minds about what the desire is, what's blocking our ability to fulfill that desire, and then finding the person who can help us to remove that block, whatever it is. Yeah, blocks, boy, they show up all over the place, don't they? (laughs) They're like, it seems like every conversation we have on every topic, there's always blocks involved in some manner, some form, some shape. It's just amazing. I mean, we we are, I I often like to talk about how we are amazing creators in all of our lives, and it's true. But boy, we're good at creating blocks. We are. We are. And and we're good at sometimes just accepting them as inevitable when so often they are not inevitable. Mm. So often they can be moved or reconfigured or we can go over them or around them. Why do you think we, we treat them as if they're inevitable? Part of it might be a lack of imagination. If we can't imagine a life that's different, then it's hard to see that block as actually just a block. It's easy to just accept it as the natural way of things. You know, I mean, to talk about sex, if we have an idea that people just lose their sexual desire as they get older, and we believe that, then as we get older, if we start having difficulties with sex, we may not see that as a block. We may just assume, well, I'm at that age. This is the end for me. You know, but it isn't. People have very pleasure-filled sex lives right up until death. You know, people in their 80s. In fact, um, there was a study not long ago, a couple years ago, that looked at sex among people of advanced age, like people in their 70s, 80s, and, and beyond. And the biggest barrier to having sex for the people who wanted it was actually lack of a partner. Mm. It wasn't a physical problem in their body. It wasn't a lack of desire. It was that they just didn't have somebody to have sex with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a bigger and bigger problem for people as we age. Sure. One of the real taboos around sex, of course, in this society is the idea of hiring somebody. We hire people to do all kinds of things. That oh, yeah. We have labels about that, too. Yeah. But um, but sex workers are people who could and do already um, provide a way for folks who don't have partners to have sex. And that is true for older people, for disabled people, for people with illnesses that might make them seem unavailable in the kind of dating market. And we don't treat that as a legal option in this country, but other countries do. Let's explore that for a moment, because I think there's a really interesting uh, paradigm going on there, Mm -hmm. because what you described is one side of that paradigm. The other side Mm -hmm. of it is a very prevalent and strong belief structure, certainly in this country, but it's not just Mm -hmm. limited to the United States. It it is fairly pervasive throughout the world that any time that you have a pay for sex situation, the women are the losers, the mm-hmm. women are the ones who are going to be dominated by, uh, you know, somebody, some man who's trying to control them by being you know, the decider who they're going to have uh, sex with and taking half the money and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, there's issues about, uh, women basically giving up their autonomy, their personal autonomy by mm-hmm. being a paid sex person. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of, and they're very strong emotions associated with them as well. People get very, yeah. very passionate about this. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So talk about that for a moment. How, how do we juxtapose that with what you presented on the other hand, which is that there could actually be a useful role here? Sure. So that, again, is largely about the way we define the situation, right? So the problems that you described, which are frequently associated with prostitution, are actually problems that are connected to the way the industry is structured, not to the actual exchange. 
So if I get to be an independent business owner, owning my own escort business, if that's my way of doing this, I keep the money. I am in control. I choose my clients. There's very little room for me to be exploited in that interaction. If the industry is completely underground and it's controlled by criminal organizations and I get drawn into that world in some way, then there's a much greater likelihood that I'm going to be exploited or harmed. So it isn't connected to the exchange of sex for something of value. It's connected to the organization of the industry. And we can see that when we look at different countries um, and their different ways of organizing sexual labor. But the other way to think about it is that the objections we have in this country to prostitution around exploitation and harm are actually also associated with a lot of other industries, just not sexualized. So people are exploited in many, many jobs. People have dangerous working conditions in many, many jobs. And we don't outlaw those jobs because they're exploitive or dangerous. That is connected to the belief system around sex. So you've got one set of problems that are connected to the way the industry is organized or not organized. Um, and then another set of issues that are connected to the belief system. But neither of those sets of issues is intrinsically describing, I'm sorry, is describing something that's intrinsically part of an exchange of sex for something of value. And a different way to think about that is that we do that all the time without cash exchanging hands. Um, marriage in many instances is an exchange of sex for something of value. Oh you boy. Know? Now that, that, that's a great point, but that's also started to step on toes. I could just. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Imagine people getting their their antenna going. Oh my God! What are you saying here? Oh, you're undermining marriage. I know. (laughs) I know. But marriage is at its at its core, um, in the civil sense of marriage, a legal contract between two people to do a bunch of things for each other and with each other. And embedded in that agreement is an agreement about sex. Yeah, that's true. They never actually mentioned it. I mean, when you get married, it's not like, well, you, you promise to have sex with each other. That's never part of the very, I've never heard of a marriage vow that included that one. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just haven't heard of that one. Right. But, well, so, so when there, when you used to be able, I'm sorry, used to be able, when you used to need grounds for divorce, refusal of sex was grounds for divorce if it happened over yeah. a long enough time, right? Yeah, some jurisdictions. Yeah. yeah. For that matter, it wasn't until the 1980s that, um, the last of the marital rape laws were taken off books and oh and boy, right? So yeah, up until that point, if uh, typically a husband forced typically a wife to have sex, that would not have been considered rape in some states. Right. Yeah. It was considered a duty, an obligation of marriage. No. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that's one of those ideas. That, but listen, that's not a daily dose of happy right there. No, no. no. So here's so, so here's the daily dose of happy, right? The daily dose of happy is that if sex is part of our lives and we want it to be a happy part of our lives, then we have to be able to negotiate the way that we have it. Mm. And we have to be able to have um, relationships with people where we can have those negotiations. And so for people without romantic or intimate or at least unpaid partners, one way to have that is through a paid sex work exchange. If that were legal, that would be a a big boon to a lot of people in this country, I think, who could suddenly have access to sex in a way that they don't know. It's interesting and intriguing to think about that. It's a little bit scary for many people Mm -hmm. to think about that, but it's also intriguing. And one of the things I think about is up until but five years ago, the idea of people being able to decide whether or not they're going to use marijuana was considered yeah. impossible. And now all of a sudden there are a number of states where it's legal. Yeah. I mean, it's not, not a majority of the states, but there, there are a few states where it's legal and others are considering decriminalizing and decriminalizing more and more. And that's where the trend is going. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility yeah. for something similar to happen where uh, pay for sex is is concerned. And yet at this point, it feels very similar to the way it felt five to 10 years ago where marijuana was concerned. Right. I think the marijuana example is a really instructive example too. And I think if you go back a step even before that and look at the way that the same sex marriage 
laws oh, changed yeah. in this yeah, country. That was huge. And and it happened. It seemed like it was never going to happen, and then it started to happen, and then suddenly it was the the law of the land. And it you know that's mm-hmm. oversimplifying the process a right. thousand times. But yes. but similar things are true if you look at the trajectory with marijuana. So what was it 20 years ago, maybe, or more that California legalized medical use of marijuana mm-hmm. more than 20 years ago, I think. And then, um, and then other states did that. And then that became a majority of states. And then some states started to either legalize for recreational use or cities started to decriminalize their approach to marijuana. And now that's spreading. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine it won't be um, more than a couple of years before the federal law changes around marijuana. It's going to have to. At some point it will, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to predict exactly when, but it'll happen. So I I think we could see a similar trajectory with decriminalization of prostitution. And there are organizations that are working toward decriminalization at the state level in a variety of states. And I think it'll, it'll happen in the same way. It'll happen in one or two states first. And then it will continue and then it will grow and then it will become the norm. I I don't know much about what I'm about to mention here, but I have a strong suspicion that it ties in directly to what we were just talking about. So that's why I'm bringing it in. Mm -hmm. You're you're involved with an organization called the Woodhull Freedom Foundation. Tell us about that. Woodhull Freedom Foundation is a nonprofit organization. It's the only national organization, the only national human rights organization that's focused specifically on sex and gender freedoms. Woodhull Freedom Foundation exists to affirm sexual freedom as a fundamental human right. Mm -hmm. And so we work on a whole lot of different things. Um, We do work on decriminalization of prostitution and destigmatization of sex work in general. We do work around reproductive justice issues and racial justice issues that are connected to sexuality. We put on an annual conference every year called the Sexual Freedom Summit that draws together an incredible array of folks from um, from sectors of the social movement world that don't always get to interact. So, you know, lawyers and social workers and advocates and nonprofit leaders and then practitioners of things like um, sex workers or um, sex educators. And all these people get to hang out in this space and share their skills and share their knowledge. And they may come because they want to give a talk about the foster care to prison pipeline, or they may come because they want to talk about um, how to talk to your doctor about sex mm. or because they want to talk about how to do fundraising and write grants to support this work. So lots of different issues. And so that's our big um our big annual conference, but we've also just begun a really exciting series of human rights commissions where in different cities, we will bring together people to talk about a specific issue and offer testimony essentially around that issue in a way that um, will allow local lawmakers to hear the personal side of the decisions that they're making around you know, whether it's housing related or sex work related or censorship related, that's one of our big focuses right now too, sexual censorship on the internet. Um, so, so that's what Woodhull does. And in fact, we're engaged in a lawsuit right now called mm-hmm. Woodhull versus the United States that is connected to a law that censors the internet around issues of prostitution. It's called FOSTA. And what FOSTA does is it takes a section of the Communications Decency Act that used to, yeah, that used to allow third-party website hosts, like say YouTube, for example, or Facebook, to be free essentially from responsibility for what people posted on their right. services, right? So that's that piece of the Communications Decency Law is called Section Two Thirty. Mm-hmm. And Section 230 was called like the the First Amendment of the Internet, the free speech protection. Right. 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 And what FOSTA does is eliminate that where it concerns prostitution. So if if a service like YouTube, um, if somebody posts something that the federal government thinks is promoting prostitution or facilitating prostitution, two very vague terms, um, then the site can be civilly and criminally liable. For that. What that has done is caused lots of 
these kinds of platforms to change their or, or strengthen their terms of services so that lots of talk is not allowed. Mm-hmm. Lots of mm-hmm. websites shut down when when FOSTA was enacted. And so we're fighting that law. And we, we believe that it's unconstitutional on a couple of grounds. It's also retroactive. It holds websites responsible for stuff that was posted before the law was even passed. Oh, that won't work. Yeah, that, that's not going to hold up in a court. I know that for sure. Well, I would hope, right? So right now, well, it doesn't mean that the, that a court will nest, the, like the Supreme Court, if it ever gets that point, doesn't mean the Supreme Court will uh, throw the whole thing up. But that part, I'm sure they'll get rid of because that right. just flies in the face of so much established it does. law. It does. It's a it's a due process issue, and yeah, and um, so that lawsuit right now is being it, it's in the early stages mm-hmm. where um, the first. So we filed the suit. We were challenged for standing. Ultimately, we have standing, and so now the the first decision really has to be made about what the district court thinks is, I'm sorry, what the circuit court thinks is the case there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And then so, there will be an appeal on either side. So, of course, absolutely. Yeah, it, 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 this is going to go on for years, I'm sure. Yeah, because it, it, none of these things go quickly. It's not like, well, we're going to be done next month. <laughs> that's not the way the legal system no, this works. This is years. This is years. <laughs> so that's another thing we've been working on, and so, so that's a big part of our work at Woodhall too. When I think about the the phrase "sexual freedom," the thing that I also think about is, I tie this up. This is going to sound strange, but I tie this into a, a a an article. It was actually even like it was more like a short essay than anything else that I saw back in the early 1980s. Um, and to give you a little bit about my background, before I got involved in all this stuff, I used to be very politically interested. I would, mm-hmm. my, my viewpoints were more libertarian than liberal or conservative, but um, I was interested in a lot of stuff like this. In fact, I studied politics. That was my degree in college mm-hmm. was political science and government. And early on, I, I found myself in communication with people from around the world, um, before the internet, long before you could join a social media circle, right. um, but we, we would send letters to each other and so forth, you know, the old fashioned way. And we would, uh, you know, share ideas and, and, you know, write articles for each other and so forth. And one particular article that got passed around was, I don't even remember the article itself. It actually didn't have a whole lot in it, but the title was interesting. The title was, you are entitled to all the freedom you can seize. Which basically was a way, it was kind of a dramatic way of trying to entice people into realizing, don't worry about what the government says, what society says, or what your culture says, or what your teachers, what are you willing to be free about? Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what does that, does that inspire any thoughts in your mind from where you've come from in terms of what you're doing with Woodhull um, Institute and with what you've been doing with your you're teaching at, at the at the college and so forth. I mean, what, what, what does that fit into your mindset is what I'm asking. That's interesting. The way you describe what it means certainly does. The the title I found myself reacting to in a kind of negative way, like in order to have freedom, we have to take it away from somebody else. You know, you're entitled to all the freedom you can seize to mm. me sounds like I'm going to grab your freedom. And, and now mm, it does. It sounds like that, doesn't it? And that, that I found initially like, hmm, I don't, I don't like the, the sound of that, but it, yes, it was I, actually one of the problems with the article, by the way, the article had, hmm. had like, it kept flipping back and forth. Are we talking about taking it from somebody else? Are we talking about taking it back from the government? What are we talking about? And the author couldn't decide. So it's a, it's a valid point. <laughs> I see. Well, I'm glad I'm not way off base. <laughs> my reaction then. Um, but no, to, to, to address it the way that you described what it actually meant, that has a lot to do with what I see as the power of sociology. So when I mm. start my introduction to sociology class, one of the things I tell my students is this class should be useful to you. One of the most useful things about this class for you should be that you understand the way that the social structures and cultural norms and all of those things work so that you can maneuver through them and around them to maximize your own happiness. You know, you have ideas, you want to achieve things. There are all kinds of barriers and all kinds, we were used the word blocks earlier, all kinds mm-hmm. of blocks, um, but none of them are inevitable. They may not all be movable, but none of them are inevitable. Mm-hmm. Everything could be organized differently. And so I encourage them to begin the course thinking about that individually 
what does this mean to you as a person? Like, what are your own desires, your goals? What are you hoping to achieve? Um, and then as we move through the class, they really start to think about it in a community oriented way too. So my other hope, uh, since it is a sociology class is that each of us will become a little less selfish as we go through the class and that we'll start to see that our happiness is in fact connected to other people's happiness. And that if all we do is seize things from people so that we have more, it doesn't really leave us better off. Right. So, so those things are a big part of how I approach teaching at the community college. And I, so that's the other thing is that I teach at a community college. So most of the people I teach are not coming from places of privilege. They're coming from struggle. Mm. And that struggle is complex. It's, it's class struggle. It's that they are growing up in households that may not have enough resources. It may be related to racism, maybe related to family structure issues. Um, they may have health issues. And so they're dealing with a lot of stuff. Mm. So helping yeah. them see that some of this is not their fault. You know, we, we live in a society, if you think about the dominant U.S. culture, it puts a lot of responsibility on the individual. If you're successful, it's because you were smart and hardworking and talented. And if you're poor, it's because you're not working hard enough or smart enough. And the reality is actually a lot more complicated than that. And I really want them to see that. I want them to see that there is a structure that's putting pressure on their lives, but that they have agency, they have power. And they can push back in creative ways. And if they organize together, then they can really achieve things. You know, they can really move the world. There, there, there's a theme that's coming through here. Uh, and it, it resonates in my mind, particularly because most days I just do one podcast each day. Today I ended up doing two. I did one before we did this mm -hmm. one here. As it was a makeup with somebody who I had previously had on about a week and a half ago, but the audio got all screwed up and I couldn't use oh, the yeah. episode. So she kindly came back and we, we did the episode. And, and while we're talking, now that episode, she, she's uh, very much about helping people um, deal with money issues and how mm -hmm. do you get more money and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the theme that kept coming up there is something we touched on earlier on here in this conversation. And I think it really is, is a good thing to bring in here again. It's the idea of what do you want? Yeah. So many people, I'm, I'm going to go back to the money topic for a bit. So many people, they, they, they know in general they want money, but if you, if, if they're asking for help, they often don't even know what to ask for because they don't know what right. they want in life. Right. It's not, it's, not, it's like they have this, they, they know that money kind of drives everything. So I need money, right. but what do you want to do with it? I don't know. Right. But you can't actually do anything until you know what it is that you want. Right. That's and, right. And it occurs to me the same thing is true with sex. Same yeah. thing is true with money. The same thing is true with death. The same thing is true with all of these issues. Yeah. Until you know what you want, no one can help you. Right. Right. You can't get where you're going if you don't have a sense of where that is. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of students who start school and they don't know what they want to major in, but they know that they need a degree. <laughs> they, know they need a degree in order to, to get money. Yeah. And one of the things that some of them will start out doing is trying to figure out, well, what major will lead me to a high paying job? Right. Yeah. And I understand why that's important, but I encourage them to think about like, what do you enjoy doing though? Because the money, what do you want the money for? If you really think about that question, generally you want the money to facilitate stability and to facilitate happiness. And if the job that you end up in is a job that makes you unhappy, then the money isn't serving its purpose right. very well. So so there's, it's a complicated balance for folks, but, but knowing what you want is this, you know, huge question. And to ask a, an 18 year old or a 19 year old to know what they want in a really existential way mm -hmm. is probably unrealistic. You know, most of us took some time to figure that question out. And the question changes over the course of our lives and we have to it be does. willing to bless with that, right? Um, so yeah, so that's a complicated thing for students it's, to think about. It, it's complicated. It, well, in, in one sense, it's, it's not, it, it, it's unnecessarily complicated. I think it's what I'm thinking. Like, for instance, yeah. In, yeah. in public schools, if you go to a public school, high school graduation and just survey the students who are graduating, you know, what they plan to do, 50% or more will tell you they have no idea. Right. And that, that, that's going to be par for the course. But right. if you go to a graduation of some of the very, very small in number, 
alternative schools where the, the right. students really have a lot more control over how their academic lives work and how their mm -hmm. high school and their really, you know, where they have a lot of freedom going on there. They actually have taken the time to figure it all out. Yeah. They, they didn't really have that opportunity going through a public school structure, mm -hmm. but because they did have in their own structure that they went yeah. through, they got to figure it out. So like, you know, 80% of them know, Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do after school. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's so right. it really just depends on at what point in time was either the student given the opportunity or did they take the opportunity? It could be one right. way or the other. But yeah, yeah, that, that becomes a big piece of the puzzle. Who yeah. is taking the opportunity and under what circumstances are they taking it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then we add in also the, the aspect of not just taking the opportunity, but knowing how to use it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a skill in, its, in and of itself. I think that's why so many people struggle with money. Mm -hmm. They struggle with many of these issues simply because they've never actually learned how mm -hmm. to identify their own needs. Yeah. It, it was always their parents who figured out what they needed or their teachers or, you know, the, the government leaders or, you know, somebody else in society or, you know, siblings, friends, somebody else. It was always somebody else who figured it out. Right. And, then, and they never actually had to figure anything else. So they never did. Right. That's true. Yeah. It's true. And we have so many needs being created and projected for us through mm -hmm. advertising and media. Oh yeah. That if we don't really stop to critically examine, do I need this? Is it making me happy? Then we find ourselves chasing these things that we think we need and we don't really need them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and those people who do pursue, say, money, because that was the earlier topic from the previous show, um they there are some people, a small minority who are actually able to just power their way through, become tremendously successful. And then they, they reach the goal. They reach the goal mm -hmm. line. Like I'm a multimillionaire. I have all these right. businesses. I'm totally successful and I'm absolutely miserable in my life. Right. Cause they never actually pursued any of the rest. They never asked the questions. Why right. am I doing this? What am I in this for? What, what, what makes my life meaningful? Right. And, and some of them actually want to commit suicide. Some of them, you know, they, they go through tremendous depression. They have terrible relationships. Their yeah. health suffers. All kinds of stuff happens simply because they never asked. They, so even those people didn't know how to ask the question. Yeah, yeah that's often true. It's, it's really quite, I mean, th to me, that's the big epidemic. I don't care what epidemic you want to point to. To me, the big epidemic is people not knowing what they want. Yeah. 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 And that, I, I think that is related to all the, we have so many options in front of us and so much presented and the form of buy this, do this, have this experience, go here, you know, the, it's, it, it's hard to slow down enough sometimes. To Which means we have to deliberately. Yeah. We have to yeah. actually make the time. We That's have to right. make it a deliberate intention to sit down and meditate, pray, whatever it takes, whatever like get do. into a space and just go inside and say, okay, what's really important to me? Yeah. What do I really care about? Yeah. Yeah. And that I think is the conversation I wish more people were having um, particularly about death mm. is mm -hmm. what do I want? Don't, don't indulge in the idea that you don't want to die because we have to. And so whether you want to or not, it's going to happen. Is there a death you would prefer? Is there a death you would rather avoid? Is there a way that you can begin to set that process in motion? I don't mean hastening your death. I mean, planning, for the kind of death that you would rather have, because it's going to happen one way or another. But if you'll allow yourself the time and the space to stop and think about it and really think about it, then not only I think, will you have a better death, but I think you'll enjoy the rest of your life more too. Sure. Because what you're basically doing in, in a very fundamental way is you're exploring what you feel about death. Yeah. And you're exploring it in ways that you hadn't really explored it before. Yeah. If you, if you, if you can actually go into it in depth, death in depth, that's say that one three <laughs> times fast. Right. Now, if, if you can actually go in depth in your exploration of death, you can get to the point fairly quickly where it just doesn't have the same impact on you anymore. It just doesn't, it feels differently. There are some people, I mean, death doula comes to mind. Death doulas, they're excited by it. They thought, oh, wow, this is really an exciting thing. Yeah. They, they live for the next time when they get, they are given the privilege of yeah. being present at someone dying because they see all these amazing, amazing things happen during the death process. So they get very excited about it, which is contrary to the way most people think about death, but nevertheless, it shows exactly what can happen when you shift your perspective by just giving attention to it. Yeah. And, you know, we can learn from people who have, who have done this, who either who because of serious illness have had to confront the fact that they're dying. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there are lots of stories out there 
from people who said, I didn't start enjoying my life until I knew I was going to die. Yeah, well, sure. Then I decided I was reorganizing my priorities. I was rethinking the way I was living and every day mattered in a new way. And I really enjoyed my life. Um, I had, I had the really good fortune to talk to a person recently who was the best friend of my father. My father died in a car accident right before I turned 10. So he was Mm. 35. He was very young. And his best friend was also his business partner. They were both dentists. And I had a chance to talk to him for the first time in like 35 years, Wow, 30 years, just the other day. And he told me something that just sent chills down my spine. He said, when your father died, that changed the rest of my life. Wow. Not only because I had just lost this really important person in my life, um, but because I realized all of a sudden that I could die at any time. And I was not going to put off the things I wanted to do for some later date down the road when I was retired. So if my father was 35, this guy was in his late 20s when this happened. He has traveled around the world. He's into photography. He has a career that can help support his desire to travel. But he made it a priority, which meant working less. I mean, he will take a month off and not earn money during that month. And, you know, again, he has the ability to do that. He has sure. the money to do that. But but he was also willing to live differently in order to make that possible. Mm-hmm. Those was trade-offs, right? But what he, what he said that was so powerful was, I was not going to wait until what, something down the road. What he discovered was appreciation. Yeah. Which yeah. is, in, in my opinion, we talk about this a lot on the show, appreciation is the highest uh, vibrational form you can reach. Because if you can appreciate, everything gets better. Mm-hmm. Appreciation makes everything better. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter yeah. the topic. It doesn't matter how painful, how good, anywhere in between. Appreciation always makes things better. And he proved that in a big way. And yeah. your father's death actually contributed to that. That's, yeah. that's really something. Yeah. I think about that in terms of gratitude. And, you know, I'm certainly not happy that my father died. But no, there are things not. I can be grateful for that came out of that. Mm-hmm. And so if I can... You know, of course, I acknowledge my sadness and my grief, but I can also acknowledge the pieces that I'm grateful for that happened as a result of his death. And at least that, like you said, it, you know, it raises the vibration, it changes my feeling, it changes my orientation. It gets us back to that idea we were talking about earlier about how we define situations and the power that defining situations gives us. If I have the power to define the situation, then I have the power to define how I'm going to feel about it. Mm, yeah, that's very empowering. We're running out of time, and I got to make sure that we get this in here because you've got a book out. I do. Correct, correct me if I'm. I got the title wrong. Bound: A Daughter, A Dom, and End of Life Story. And you got to tell us what that is about. You got to give us at least a teaser on that. I'll one. give you yeah, a teaser. It's a, so it's <laughs> a, it, it's a memoir I wrote after my mother died, and it is about sex and death. It's about her sexual awakening, how her illness shaped her experience of sex. But it's mostly about her last eight months and the healthcare system and navigating that system and the way that that system is not very well set up to help us with our sexuality or with our death. And so there are a lot of lessons in there for caregivers. The The title, Bound, um, obviously has some some kink associations, you know, bondage and that kind of thing. But it also... Um, this is, if, I don't know if you can see this cover. Um, it oh, also yeah. has, um, implications for caregiving relationships, for love relationships, for, in this case, a mother daughter relationship and the ties that bind us to each other mm-hmm. and the power of those ties. Um, it's newly out as an audio book, which I'm super excited about because oh, the, congratulations. thank you. The person who narrated it, Rachel Music, could not have embodied the spirit of the story better. Wow. And it's a fabulous listen in addition, I think, to being a good read. So it's available wherever you buy your books. It's it's on Amazon. It's on Audible. You know, wherever you get your books, you can find it. I'm sure that anyone who loves audiobooks is going to really appreciate the fact that you have someone narrating it who really knows how to narrate it and really carry the, the spirit of it. Because for yeah. somebody who likes an audiobook, that's what makes the book good. Yes, it's the yeah. content of the book, but it's also how it's read. Well, she's really good as a reader, but she was also fabulous as an engineer. She produced it as well. Really? Oh, and, okay. So the sound quality is great. Her reading is animated and it draws you right into the story. She is wonderful. Yeah, that's the way a good audiobook should be. An audiobook should be kind of like listening to a 
uh, watching a movie or something. You just bring it right in. So you're like, I can't put this book down or I can't stop listening to this book. That's what a good audiobook should do. Yeah, well, I think she did that for this story. She was a lot of fun to work with. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Well, this has been really fun. This has been, and thank you for bringing in a topic we hadn't talked about because sex had not been a, a formal topic here on the show. We had talked about death a few times, but uh-huh. uh, we finally got that other one in there. So thank you for, okay. for doing that. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Thank you for what you do too. You have a very unusual career path, but it plays an important role in society. Well, thank you for having me on your show and thank you for putting this show out there. I think it's good for all of us to think more about happiness, how to get there. Yeah. I mean, we, we can't expect to be happy, but we can certainly increase. And the yeah. funny thing is that life gets better. So yeah, that's what we're that's all doing. So thank you, Elizabeth. This has been great. Thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. Thank you to, there were a few people on the live stream too who were, who were checking in. So thank you to them as well. And we will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>